deeming an untimely appeal to be timely for no reason at all just seems to me like random violence to appellate procedure. Welcome to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. And now your hosts, Tim Cole and Jeff Lewis. Welcome, everyone. I am Jeff Lewis. And I'm Tim Kowal, California Department of Podcasting, pending review. The California Appellate Law Podcast is a resource for trial and appellate attorneys. Jeff and I are appellate specialists. We split our time about evenly between trial and appellate courts. In each episode, we try to bring our listeners some legal news and tips they can use in their practice. Welcome to episode 35 of the podcast. And a quick announcement, this podcast is sponsored by Case Text. Case Text is a legal research tool that harnesses AI and a lightning fast interface to help lawyers find case authority quickly. I've been a subscriber since 2019, and I highly endorse this service. And listeners of the podcast will receive a 25% lifetime discount available to them if they sign up at casetext.com slash calp. That's casetext.com slash C-A-L-P. Yeah, I've been a longtime user of Case Text as well. The parallel search uh, search function is amazing. And uh, yeah, I, I, I highly recommend using it. I, all of the cases that we cite in our show notes are through Case Text. So this, uh, this week, we, uh, we're going to share some uh, recent cases and news. And uh, the first pair of cases that I wanted to share, Jeff, are about deal with untimely appeals. And when I first started doing a lot of appellate law blogging and we did this podcast, I mostly wanted to try to find you know, scary cases and be able to jump out from around a corner and scare poor trial attorneys. And this is why you need to worry about appellate procedure, because this is how easily your appeals can get dismissed. But I found a pair of cases this week where clearly untimely appeals did not get, get dismissed. And I was just gobsmacked by it. The first case uh, I wanted to share is Pelter versus 1-800-GET-THIN. It's out of the second district. It's a May 2022 case. It's unpublished. And uh, there, the court and appeal filed a full 10 months after the judgment was entered. The deadline could not have been more than 180 days after the rule. So at a minimum, this appeal was filed more than four months late. But the court found the appeal was timely. How can an appeal filed 10 months after an appeal, uh, after a judgment, possibly be timely, Jeff? Well, the answer you see is that there was an amended judgment that where the, the, it awarded the plaintiff costs in month eight. So, or the defendant, I guess here. So it was timely as to the amended judgment. But wait a minute, the, the respondent argued, the arguments on appeal had nothing to do with the cost award in the amended judgment. The entire appeal was attacking the 10-month-old judgment. And an amended yeah. judgment... Was- yeah, my, my gut would tell me that, okay, if you want to file that later notice of appeal to the later judgment, then sure, you're welcome to attack the costs, but you're out of luck for arguing the merits. That's right. what my gut tells me. Yeah, yeah. The, the rule is that an amended judgment that merely orders cost does not restart the time to appeal from the underlying judgment. But the court disagreed. It said, quote, no principle or authority supports that argument. The, the, the rule I just uh, said that, that an amended judgment, unless it substantially changes the underlying judgment, does not resurrect the time to appeal from the underlying judgment. But the court of appeal held that the appeal here was timely. Now, Jeff, I think I, I know that the court is mistaken here. There are, in fact, at least, and certainly it's mistaken that there is no principle or authority that says that holds for that rule that I just stated. There are several cases, in fact, including out of the second district that hold that an amended judgment does not restart the time to appeal unless it changes the substantive underlying judgment. But again, the court went on to affirm 
I guess you could chalk this up to the no harm, no foul principle, but I'm not so sure. Deeming an untimely appeal to be timely in order to do justice is at least something uh, that's an intelligible. I can understand the impulse, but here the court didn't reverse. It still went on to affirm. And so deeming an untimely appeal to be timely for no reason at all just seems to me like random violence to appellate procedure. What do you think, Jeff? <laughs> well, I have a few thoughts. You know, first of all, you know, it's unpublished. It goes, you know, we've talked for a few episodes about our thoughts about why more opinions should be published. And by unpublished decisions, certain things kind of fall under the radar. And this is clearly that. And let me say this, you know, the, the bottom line rule is to be safe. You should always file a notice of appeal from the original judgment as well as, as the amended judgment, just to make sure covering your basis. No, uh, no appeal ever got dismissed from filing too many notices of appeal. But I, I was thinking back about a tweet you, you you recently sent on Twitter, where you said you ascribed a, a, a theory, the Jeff Lewis law hypothesis for the utility of complicated appellate rules, relaxing the machinery of arcana as how appellate judges show sympathy to deserving litigants without changing the actual outcome. And here, in this case, the 1-800-GET-THIN case, the lead appeal was allowed, but the trial court's ruling ultimately was affirmed. The appellant lost, and the uh, young woman who died on the operating table, rather than having her case thrown out on a timing issue for an untimely appeal, the case was thrown out more or less on the merits. So I guess this result in, in this 1-800-GET-THIN case would offer further evidence in support of support of my hypothesis, now that may support your hypothesis. As I said, it you know it didn't. The court went on to affirm, so you could say it's no harm, no foul. But I wonder why did the court bother to even take up the issue? Maybe the court could have just swept it under the rug, not even said a word about the appealability or timeliness issue. And yeah. in fact, that is what that's what happened in the next case that I'll talk about. It's uh, heard versus heard, and and I should disclose I'm I I represented the respondent in this uh, in the appeal in this matter so i'll be a little circumspect circumspect about the facts so this I'll is another I'll keep you honest. Yeah, there's another non-published uh, opinion here and, uh, and 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 I'll back up because it relates to another case uh, also which i consulted on it was cast versus kelly. And so b- both the heard case and the cast case are both out of the second district. I was brought in in the cast case to consult on an appeal after the court had requested briefing why the appeal was not untimely because because it had been filed more than 60 days after the notice of entry. And the best argument I could come up with was that the notice of entry did not attach the judgment. And uh, the court concluded, nah, that's not a good reason. The rules state that the that what starts the 60-day clock is either uh, a file-stamped copy of the judgment or a notice of entry. It doesn't say that the notice of entry has to attach the judgment. But here's what happened in the Heard case. The shoe was on the other foot. I was the respondent there, and the appeal had been filed more than 60 days after a notice of entry. And the notice of entry there did not attach the order that was appealed from. So the same reasoning came up as, as in the Cast versus Kelly case. I I argued that, hey, the, the rules of court do not require that the notice of entry attach the judgment. And the court concluded no, it's it's timely, and then it went on to reverse the judgment. Now, jeez, oh, the uh, but there the the court didn't even make a whisper about the appealability or the timeliness issue. It just acted as if it never it never was raised. And so I took a, took up a petition for review to the Supreme Court there on grounds that the Court of Appeal lacked jurisdiction because, as we know, or as, at least as we're told, appealability and timeliness of the notice of appeal are fundamental jurisdictional issues. But the court summarily denied my petition. 
Yeah, well, look, it doesn't surprise me. Supreme Court doesn't exist to cure legal error. The Supreme Court is more concerned with published opinions, and these were both unpublished disastrous results rather than affecting what a prior guest called the tapestry of our case law, right? That could be, but if we start to see a lot of these uh, cases come up that, that run roughshod over the jurisdictional rule, ignore the gatekeeping function to ensure that our courts of appeal only hear appeals from, from appealable issues and that are filed timely, then uh, how long can we continue to maintain the belief that the court is on the level when it says that these are jurisdictional rules? I, I recall that there was the Supreme Court not... Well, I guess it's a little while ago, back in 1975 in the Hollister Convalescent Hospital versus RICO case, that involved an appeal that was dismissed because it was filed one day late. And why was it filed one day late? Because the clerk told the appellant the wrong date that the order had been entered. So a completely innocent appellant upon a a mistaken report from the clerk wound up filing an appeal one day late and could not get relief from the the Supreme Court there. But- Now we have the, the way to get relief. If, if the court ever asks, how can we possibly entertain this appeal when it was filed late? You could just say, well, I have seen courts just simply ignore the issue, Your Honor, and that seems to work just fine. Yeah, that might not be my argument. but uh. <laughs> It's only one that, that exists, and it seems to work. <laughs> All right. Another, another topic, moving on from timeliness and untimely appeals, another perennial topic of interest to appellate attorneys and to trial attorneys are is the record on appeal. And, you know, Jeff, as, as appellate attorneys, our number one, you know, most common advice to trial attorneys is get a court reporter for your hearing. Yep. And if yep. you don't have a court reporter, what do you do? The only other game in town are settled statements. Now, personally, I've never done a settled statement, but there is, it is a, it is provided in, in the rules that you can put together a proposed settled statement explaining what had happened at the, at the hearing or the trial. And the court is supposed to review it and sign off on it, maybe make edits as necessary. And that becomes the record of the oral proceedings for purposes of appeal. Now, I have to say, you know, I understand the theory behind this. And I've been involved in a lot of appeals with settled statements. I've never actually prepared one, but I've been involved where I've had to read them when I responded. In theory, it aids the court of appeal figure out what happened at the trial level. But in practice, these settled statements don't really add much. They're not a replacement for the reporter's transcript in any meaningful sense. They will say, you know, person one argued A, B, C, D, person two argued one, two, three, and the judge ruled A, B, C, and that's about it. It doesn't really give you much flavor. So I've never really understood why a party that provides a settled statement as to what happened receives preferential treatment in the court of appeal over a party who had no court reporter and didn't go through the hoops of a settled statement. I've never understood I've never understood hmm. it, but go ahead. That was a yeah. tangent. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm not, yeah, that, that, that raises a good point. But he, here's, what the, uh, here's what the appellant tried to get into a settled statement in the recent unpublished case of RM versus JJ out of the third district. This was a, an April 2022 case. The, the appellant there had a pretty solid issue on appeal. She argued that her ex-husband had made frequent ang- angry outbursts and hostile gesticulations throughout the day-long hearing. The mother thought that this display of her ex-husband's rather obvious need of anger management confirmed that giving him custody of a young child was not in the child's best interest. But the the trial court refused to consider the ex-husband's outbursts at trial. And and the appellant thought, I'm going to get this reversed because you you refuse to consider probative uh, evidence at trial and making this discretionary ruling. That can be an abuse of discretion all by itself. 
And but the the court of appeal basically said, I don't see any outbursts in the record, so we can't consider this issue because there's no re- record of these supposed out- outbursts. The order was affirmed because what happened uh, is that on appeal you have to show the court of appeal what happened during the trial court proceedings. And normally you want to get a court reporter. The appellant didn't have a court reporter here, whether because it was expensive or some other reason. And so the appellant tried to use the settled statement process, but the the settled statement itself became a heavily litigated affair and resulted in a version that was expurgated of all the matters relating to these outbursts, which the mother had wanted to raise in the appeal. So she got the worst of both worlds. She wound up spending more money litigating over the settled statement. And, uh, and also she didn't get in any of the evidence of the, of the outbursts that she wanted the court of appeal to consider. Yeah, it's interesting because I think in an earlier episode that we taped, I mocked you for suggesting that either either a trial court or an appellate court would ever be interested in eye-rolling, hand-waving, or other gesticulating, but uh, I guess I was wrong. Yeah, well, we we uh, we can't know if it was going to if if it was going to get anywhere because it didn't make it into the record. The mother filed a writ petition to try to get it into the record, uh, arguing that the trial court abused its discretion by refusing to settle the statement that was proposed. That was denied, and then on appeal, when she raised the issue again, the court of appeal said, "Well, maybe, but you uh, you cite you didn't cite to your proposed settled statement. Instead, you pro- you s- cited to your declaration in support of your settled statement, and that's not good enough." Yeah. And I know of no rule that says that you have to cite to one and not the other, but it left me with the upshot that if you want a settled statement, basically you have no right to it. Uh, it's in the rules, yeah. but the court of appeal, the, the trial court doesn't like giving them, and the court of appeal has no inclination in enforcing uh, or enforcing the court of uh, the trial court to give you one. Yeah, get a court reporter. <laughs> yeah. All right. I want to talk next about a case that's now pending before the California Supreme Court. Oral argument scheduled for next week, late May. And uh, the case is Sorova versus Sony Music. It involves the intersection of anti-slap law, class actions, and First Amendment work. And let me just set the table for some of our listeners. You know, California law has declared that certain lawsuits that arise from either free speech or government petitioning activity, and which have no evidentiary or legal value, are considered slap lawsuits. Those are strategic lawsuits against public participation. And California's anti-slap law provides that any defendant sued as a result of free speech or government petitioning activity can bring a motion to dismiss the case at the very beginning of the lawsuit. And if a plaintiff can't prove up that the case has merit with evidence, the case is dismissed. This is known as an anti-slap motion. And the first issue, whether a lawsuit arises from protected activity, is known as the prong one question. And the second issue, whether the plaintiff can provide evidence that the case has minimal merit, that's known as prong two. And that brings us to this case involving Sony Music. So this is a case that's been to the California Supreme Court twice. This is the second visit. And after Michael Jackson's death, an album of Jackson songs or songs that were reported to be sung by Michael Jackson was published. After his death, there was controversy about whether the songs were actually sung by Jackson. And a lawsuit was filed under the California Unfair Competition Laws and Consumer Legal Remedies Act against Sony Music and others responsible for publishing the album. Sony filed an anti-slap motion, arguing that as to prong one, statements made about the album are protected activity. And as to prong two, the statements were not commercial and then not reachable reachable under the unfair competition law. So the procedural history of this case is a mess. And you'd have to draw a diagram to really diagram out all the issues. But two decisions by the California Court of Appeal and two petitions for review granted the California Supreme Court. And most recently, the Supreme Court said it's going to address whether statements made about a creative product, including music, 
on the packaging and in advertisements constitute an issue of public interest under prong one. And second, the Supreme Court's going to consider whether representations made about a creative product can constitute commercial speech or non-commercial speech, whether or not it's actionable under California's unfair competition law or Consumer Legal Remedies Act. I got to say, this case caught my eye because of, well, two trips up to the Supreme Court. I always find interesting. Uh, and also cases that are at the edge of anti-slot protection. In this case certainly is a very close one. You know, the Sony defendants in one brief argued that allowing the case to survive an anti-slap motion and proceed to trial would, quote, chill artistic expression to its core. And I'm always concerned about case law that has the potential to narrow the application of the anti-slap law. On the other hand, I don't think the legislature had big businesses like Sony Music in mind when they imagined enacting the anti-slap law to protect helpless defendants. And I wonder if this case, with two trips to the Supreme Court and two decisions by the Court of Appeal, might be best described as a smack, a strategic motion against credible claims. This case concerning an album released in 2010, which has been ping-ponging back and forth in the courts of appeal for years. I'm watching it closely, and I'll be listening closely to the oral arguments on May 24th, and maybe we'll talk about the decision in a future episode. And we'll have links to the case and the uh, some of the uh, really excellent briefing in AR in our show notes. You see any indication in any of the cases, Jeff, whether the courts treat litigants differently who who raise the anti the protections of the anti-slap statute who are well healed versus those who raise the the protections who are who are the poor put upon defendants. No, were, were intended by the legislature. <laughs> I haven't. Uh, both in personal experience in cases I've litigated and just by observation cases I've read, I have not. I have not seen that. Well, I, I guess that's a good thing. I mean, that's what the law is meant to do, right? The the rich and the and the poor are supposed to get the same result. Yeah, yeah. Although if the idea of the anti-slap law is to prevent big companies from or big entities or well well-to-do plaintiffs from silencing critics or silencing chilling petitioning activity. I think the inherent in that idea is that there's in, inequitable finances between the plaintiff and the defendant. And here, where you have presumably a plaintiff of modest means against a big corporation that runs counter to what I, I suspect was the legislature's intentions, but we'll see how the case turns out. Well, do you want to hazard a prediction about how this one comes down? I It is my prediction that under prong, it will be considered within the anti-slap law and under prong two, all the communications on the album cover and the videos were all non-commercial in nature and not actionable. And under prong two, Sony wins. That's hmm. my prediction. All right. But do me a favor, hold this recording until after all arguments. <laughs> all right. Next, I want to talk about one other case that came down yesterday. We've been talking a bit about some cases that you brought to my attention about witnesses, uh, observing witnesses with masks on and not having masks on and whether that can impact a confrontation uh, rights and the ability to assess the credibility of a witness. This next case involves a Ninth Circuit case regarding the conduct of criminal trials during the height of the pandemic. In U.S. versus Allen, there was a criminal conviction and the district court in Northern California closed a criminal courtroom to members of the public. And that's not a big surprise. That happened in courtrooms across the country, but also only allowed members of the public to listen to an audio stream but not a video stream. So if I remember one of the public wanted to watch or, or observe this criminal trial, the only way they could do it is by listening an audio stream. And the trial counsel made an objection that this violated the Sixth Amendment uh, rights to a public trial. 
And they want out. The defendant appealed to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit has held uh, that the district court's order was not narrowly tailored because courts throughout the country facing the same need to balance public health issues against the defendant's public right trial. Other courts developed COVID protocols that allowed for video observation. And the court went on to say that video observation of a trial as opposed to just audio observation of a trial is qualitatively different in terms of the proceedings. So the conviction was vacated and a new trial was ordered. Oh, you're muted, Tim, one more time. Sorry about that. Did the opinion stay, uh, say why the uh, court decided not to uh, stream the video and only to stream the, the audio? No, only that it was meaning out of step from other courts, but didn't really have a justification. Yeah. And did the court, uh, I'm actually not aware of the, of the policy reasons. Uh, obviously, I know that, that there's a constitutional requirement to the, uh, to the public trial, but what is the, uh, what's the, the historical justification and need for having the public trial? And why was it not served well enough by an audio stream? Well, I think about it with a video stream, you can look at witnesses, you can look at a judge, you can look at a defendant and through facial expressions, better assess credibility and get a better sense of what's happening in the courtroom as opposed to just hearing words. It's the difference yeah. between radio and TV. Yeah, I, I agree with that outcome. I'm uh, surprised that the court, uh, that, that the trial court was uh, resistant yeah. to the video stream. Yeah, me too. Hey, uh, one other uh, thing I want to bring up to our audience, you know, in an earlier episode, we talked about a lawsuit filed by the LA and San Francisco DA's office jointly, one lawsuit against the Potter Handy law firm. And, uh, you know, Potter Handy was accused of clogging the courts with frivolous ADA lawsuits. And a newspaper up in San Mateo, we'll put a link to the newspaper article in our, in our show notes. This newspaper up in San Mateo did an examination of the stats that for the year 2021, Potter Handy filed 2,076 ADA lawsuits in the United States District Court for the Northern District. And this accounted for 85% of all ADA lawsuits filed in that district for that year, and 23% of all filings of any type in the Northern District. And that's a remarkable stat, especially it's a San Diego law firm. After the DAs filed their joint lawsuit, the newspaper did a study and found that Potter Handy filed three ADA lawsuit after the filing of this lawsuit. So uh, I, I wonder if other ADA filings, not by just this firm, but by other firms have dropped in this and other districts. It'd be interesting to see whether the volume of these uh, cases uh, drop. That's that's a staggering number. 2,076 lawsuits. If, if, you're filing, if, you're, if you're filing lawsuits that represent nearly a quarter of all of the filings seen in that court, that's making that would be making myself rather more conspicuous than I'd be comfortable with. Yeah, I, I guess the only surprising thing about this joint LA San Francisco DA lawsuit is why it didn't happen sooner, given that volume. Yeah, but yeah, that is it's very that is interesting to seeing that the stark uh, downtick in the number of their filings. Yeah, the, I think the DAs have to be looking at themselves saying. And we've already done a public. One other case I want to talk about, it came, ruling came down uh, last week in the uh, Superior Court, but sure, I expect it to go up to the Court of Appeal. Uh, California was one of the first states in the country to enact a law requiring corporations that are headquartered in California to have a minimum number of female members of the board of directors. The law was known as Senate Bill 826. And I say it was known as Senate Bill 826 because Last week, the law was struck down on equal protection grounds uh, by an L.A. Superior Court judge. And so it'll be interesting to see how, how that proceeds up the Court of Appeal, maybe to the California Supreme Court, and see if somebody steps in to try to defend that law. Yep. Yeah. And we have, uh, 
I think uh, we done. Do you have one more announcement, or can I make the final announcement? <laughs> I'll do one one more, and that is, you know, we're very familiar as appellate lawyers with amicus briefs, and this usually occurs when a case when a court's considering whether to accept discretionary review uh, of a matter or in the court of appeal regarding uh, cases that'll definitely be decided. With the leaked uh, draft brief in the Roe v. Wade matter before the United States Supreme Court, it's the first time I've ever seen this, and I, I learned about it from the Howard Bashman How Appealing blog. An amicus party has sought leave to file a late, a late brief attacking the draft opinion that was leaked. Kind of a first. It's a first in terms of the leak, and it's a first in terms of a post-amicus brief looking to attack a, a draft opinion. It's kind hmm. of an interesting issue, and I suspect many more, many more briefs will follow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think yeah, I think the w- w- we've seen some fallout from that leak, and the, and the fallout will continue. I'm afraid. Um, yeah. All right. Well, our our final announcement today. One of our co-hosts, who is not myself is celebrating a birthday today. Jeff Lewis, we won't won't ask him his age, but we're recording this on May 17th, 2022. It's Jeff Lewis's birthday. And I know that because I can see the sign in his office in the the Zoom screen there that says, it is your birthday. And in in true appellate fashion, there's no overhype. There's there's no exclamation mark after that. It is your birthday, period. So a a nice subdue. We don't need uh, needless adjectives or punctuation. (laughs) Yes, it's very, uh, very cleaned up and short. Well, I think that I appreciate the uh, birthday wish and that wraps up uh, this episode. And uh, again, we want to thank Case Text for sponsoring the podcast. And uh, each week we will include uh, links to the cases we discuss using Case Text. And listeners of the podcast can find a 25% discount if they sign up for Case Text at casetext.com slash calp. That's casetext.com slash C-A-L-P. And we always welcome suggestions for topics or guests uh, from our listeners. Uh, please email us at info at calpodcast.com. And uh, we'll be back next time with more tips on how to lay the groundwork for an appeal when preparing for trial. All right. See you next time. You have just listened to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. For more information about the cases discussed in today's episode, our hosts, and other episodes, visit the California Appellate Law Podcast website at calpodcast.com. That's calpodcast.com. Thanks to Jonathan Caro for our intro music. Thank you for listening, and please join us again. 